to this. You know what? And in the ring with Dan and Benny, hey, brother, man, he's about the most cat. I just love him to death. I love you. Thanks for having me. Hey, you're the best. I'm telling you, brother, in the ring with Dan and Benny. Yeah. We love you. Thank Woo. you so much, Dan. Oh, yeah. Hello, friends, and welcome to another edition of Dan and Benny in the Ring. I'm Dan Spashano, joined, as always, by the player himself, Benny Scala. Benny, how you doing today, buddy? You know, Dan, last week, the Wrestling Remembered show on the Monty and Farrow YouTube channel, they shocked the wrestling world with the announcement that Tony Khan had signed Aunt Esther from Sanford and Son to a long-term deal. Now, I have some inside info that uh, Eddie Haskell is about to become All Elite, but it's not yet official. Still a rumor at this point, but it will happen. And everyone out there, you heard it first on Dan and Benny in the Ring. Yeah, if only we'd been able to, to break the news came out today that, that ja- starting in January of 2025, WWE Monday Night Raw will be off television for the first time in over 30 years as it moves exclusively to Netflix. Yeah, what do you think about wrestling being slowly becoming a streaming-only service? Yeah, right. Be, be interesting to see. But, Benny, um, you know, we always say when we do the show – we love the uh, we don't we don't we don't want to do the normal interviews, you know, question, question. It, we always try and have it come off sound like a couple of guys sitting around having a beer or in today's case, maybe having some pizza. Why don't you uh, introduce everybody? Uh, who's the third guest we got this evening? This should be some Absolutely. great stories yeah. we're hearing tonight. Well, you know, professional wrestling has many aspects to it that we love dearly. And, and one of those is that for many, it's a family thing. There's been many, so many great wrestling families over the years. And, you know, when the within the past couple of months. Uh, the Iron Claw was released, which was chronicling the history of the uh, the Von Erichs. You got the Hearts, the Funks, the Ortons, and we could go on and on. But our guest tonight is a member of one of the most storied families in the history of professional wrestling, the Malenkos. One of my face, my, one of my very first memories as a wrestling fan was buying, I think it was Wrestling Review magazine, opening it and seeing the great Malenko with all the pictures very closely resembling resembling a crime scene. So I'm. A homicide, almost. I'm delighted to welcome Jody Simon, a.k.a. Joe Malenko, brother of Dean, son of the great Boris, Professor Malenko. Jody, welcome to Dan and Benny in the Ring. Hey, Dan and Benny in the Ring. Actually, when my dad um, when my dad got pissed off, there were many crime scenes in my house. <laughs> I, was, I was the guy on the ground. You know, they do the chalk outline thing around me. Okay. Yeah. It, it, how's, the, how's the old saying go? It wasn't a... Uh... It wasn't a, a pattern in the rug. It was just all the overlapping chalk outline bodies. There you go. You know, uh, uh, this is such an honor to talk to you. It, normally, we when we uh, talk to the guests, we always want to start with the same question. We, we try and get them to recall the time and place where the bug bit them when they became fans. I mean, obviously, you know, you were exposed to professional wrestling from birth. Uh, was there ever a doubt in your mind that you were going to make professional wrestling your vocation was there any doubt whatsoever did you have other ideas or did you just know from day one this is my life i had 873 doubts well i, I couldn't work a stripper pole real well <laughs> man after your own heart benny i don't yeah i don't have that problem but i can identify i kept slipping i 
you know, and when you get older, if you do it, you break a hip and then you're dead. <laughs> yeah, I, look, I had um, I had a course set for me because of who my dad was. So I just followed that course. I didn't I didn't really ever I didn't ever think that I wasn't going to do it, but I never really had it in my radar to become anything special in the business. My brother did. I mean, my brother, my brother wanted to be a professional wrestler from the time he was, you know, when I first held him in my lap at two years of age. But just short of that, I, I just, I, I had some, uh, you know, I, had, I had some opportunities arise and I did that, but I was also doing all my other stuff, which kind of set the tone for my real life as a pharmacist. There you go. So we we had on uh, Paige von Hess Sutherland. She was the, the, she's the daughter of uh, Kurt von Hess. Uh, yeah. She was a former guest on our show. She did a really good job describing the uh, the no, very nomadic life of a territory wrestler. They moved uh, seventeen times. She said in ten years they kept U-Haul in business. Did did the Simon family uh, follow the same path? Only in the early days. I mean until until I until we got to Florida when I was in seventh grade. So that would have been six. So that would have been 1968, 67, 68. Um, until that point in time, yeah, we were all over the place. You know, it was it was a it was a nomadic lifestyle. We, you know, we literally would just climb in the car and load it up and head on out to a new territory. A lot of times, a lot of times there were issues. You know, there were there were deals where my dad would be on the road, and he would say, "Hey, um, need you guys to get ready and come join me." So I was a you know, I was a kid, young kid who was responsible for packing up a car and i could pack a car like nobody's business i could put two cars in one car that skill skill never never set never set me up for success but i could pack a good car so where where did he go jody i know he was in new york for a while actually he was in new york around the time uh bruno broke in in the early 60s i remember bruno i mean i look you know you do these things you tell the same stories all the time and even even when I talk about wrestling, I tell the same stuff all the time. It's I've only got I've only got so many s- stories to circulate through, and so I, I I usually change them up a little bit. I lie a lot and change them up a little bit just hey, for my own. We won't know. It's fine, yeah. right? Um, you know, so back in the day, in the early '60s, that was when my dad was wrestling at the Old Garden for Vince Senior, and I would go as a kid with him, and you know I'd be in the dressing room with Bruno and um, Bobo Brazil, and Wahoo came in and. I mean, my dad and Wahoo had a couple major matches at, at MSG in the day. <coughs> Those were great times. And then as far as where he went afterwards, um, again, it was all over the place. He was in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, St. Joe, Missouri. He was in, or he, we, um, uh, we were in um, San Francisco for a while. In San Francisco, right. for Shire. Outside of San Francisco, we we were in Hayward, so it was it was my dad, Carl Gotch came at that point in time to work out there. Uh, Pedro Godoy was out there with us. Um, yeah, it was it, you know they used to they used to work at the Cow Palace back in the day. I drove by there a while back, and you know, I look over and a lot of memories. And then uh, Charlotte was a big territory both early on, <coughs> and then later on in my dad's life, uh, he ended up back he ended up back up in back up in Charlotte for a long time, which is where I kind of first started when I was uh, really plying the referee side of my skills, whatever skills you need to have to be a referee. Did he work in Texas at all? What's that? Did he work in Texas? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, 
worked in Texas for Von Erichs and then, you know, in and out of Houston for Paul Bosch at the time. Paul was a, Paul was a great guy. One of the, Paul was one of those guys that as a promoter, he had very few people ever say anything bad about him. You know, they used to say about promoters, there's two, there's two kinds of promoters. I'm sure you've heard this. No, shake your head. Yes. No. Yeah. Two kinds of promoters, bad, bad and worse. Yeah. <laughs> so Paul was one of the few who was a stand-up guy, um, you know, World War II vet, wrote poetry. He, he counted George Bush Sr. as one of his best friends. Um, he was a local dignitary in Houston, so just phenomenal guy. I've seen his payoff sheets. I mean, as a, I'm a former accountant. I, I, I like them. Everything balanced. Well, I'm sorry about you being a former accountant, but yeah, right. he, he was a he was a stand-up, honest guy. If you were working for Paul, what you didn't have to worry about is, you know, you were going to look around the arena and see a full place, and then get told that it was, you know, only half of what it was a week before. I, I even had that in multiple territories where you're, you know, you get a payday, and the place is jam packed, and the next day it's, and the next time you're in the same place it's jam packed, but your payday is about half of what it was. And you can't make you can't make heads or tails over why that is the case. And if you confronted the promoter about it, usually they told you to just leave the territory if you don't like it. Right. Wow. Well, let me ask you a quick follow up. You're talking about moving uh, as a kid. Obviously, you know, we had we've had a lot of family members on the show talking about, you know, bouncing around and everything. Was it easier from the perspective of a kid like, you know, you, you would go back to back to, to the Carolinas or go back to Texas after having been gone a year or two, whatever it is. Was it easier to go back and settle in as, as a kid or, you know, you like you said, by the time you got to Florida in seventh grade, it was a little past it. Did, or, or did you not have to worry about going back to areas and, and relearning the ropes or whatever it would be? Yeah, we, yeah, we didn't we didn't have to we didn't have to worry about going back because in the again in the old territory days you really it wasn't that you it wasn't that you were making a circuit you were just finding that next that next territory that you were going to move to based on the fact that you had either overstayed your welcome somewhere or the angles just had died and you know it was time for you to move on or you just or your paydays were the, the shits and you had right. well you were talking earlier you said about about the you know, your time as the referee and and yeah I mean, obviously you had training you were you were trained by the legendary carl gotch um now i'm i'm in my 40s uh most people my age maybe a little older if you ask who's the toughest wrestler ever they'll probably say something like harley race you know uh haku so, someone along those lines with that reputation but when you start getting into Benny's age and beyond you know just a few months past me at this point, um, you know, you ask them and they'll tell you Billy Robinson, but a lot of them will say Carl Gotch. So I'm curious if you can expand on that. What about him was so tough and how tough was he as a trainer? Well, so first and foremost, I mean, tough is tough is tough. So you get, you get, you get a lot of guys in this business who were legitimate, tough guys who you did, you wouldn't want to mess with. They were competent both on a mat or in the street. You know, I mean, when you talk about, you know, when you talk about Haku, when you talk about Mang, you talk about a guy who bites your nose off, you know? Right. That, I think that's pretty tough. <laughs> Especially a tough if you're the guy who just lost your nose. <laughs> yeah. He, he used to play that game. where Who's got your nose? <laughs> but he actually yeah. had Haku's <laughs> got it. <laughs> so that's pretty tough. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, um, Harley, sure, he was, a, he was a tough bastard. Carl was a... Carl was a well-trained tough guy. 
you know, both on the street and on the mat. So he was just, his training was at a different level. Um, and as far as being on a mat, he was, he was the toughest guy I knew, or, or still to this day, he's the toughest guy I've ever known. And anybody who worked with him and anybody who had any interaction with him will tell you the same thing. He was, he was, uh, he was amazing because he lived, he lived, you know, shoot wrestling or submission style wrestling. You know, now they've got, you know, catch as catch is like the catchphrase, but we were just, I always tell people we were just, we were hookers, you know, and it was funny because when you're a kid, you, you know, you tell people you're a hooker, everybody gets all giggly and stuff, but you know, we, we were hookers. You know, we, we were looking to put submissions on you. You could get pinned in that time. So you were, you know, first and foremost, you were wrestlers and Carl was a legitimate, great wrestler. He trained a couple guys who one of them ended up taking silver in the world against this guy from Japan, Sasahara, and another guy. Um, that was Jeff Mewis, and then Joe Mewis. That, that he took, um, you know, he took gold in the world. So, you know, and Carl was responsible for training them. He trained a lot of guys who were legitimate, great athletes in his day. And he went to the, yeah, he went to the Olympics right after the war, but his body was so beat up from being in the, you know, being in the prison camps. He wasn't in a concentration camp, which is sort of a fallacy that runs around out there. He was, uh, he was in a, he was in a work camp. But, you know, we're not talking club med. Right. You, know, you, weren't, you weren't laying on comfy beds where you could adjust the you know, adjust the firmness. <laughs> Jody, what, why? I mean, he was great. And, I mean, he was always pretty much on top. Uh, he won, I think, with Rene Goulet. I think he won the <laughs> WWF. Yeah, but World he didn't Day. win a lot of titles around the country, though. Is it because the promoters were afraid that he wouldn't uh, – you know, give the belt up because obviously very few people could take it away from him. Well, there were a couple. There was a couple of things. One is, one is that everybody was scared of him. I mean, because they just they hear a reputation about a guy a guy being a shooter, and they just don't want to deal with him. Uh, you know, I had I had guys looking at me thinking, oh, I'm you know, not sure about you. I'm like, come on, man, I'm a pro. I'm going to get in the ring, I'm going to do my job. I'm going to I'm going to give you my body, and I'm going to take care of your body. Um, Carl. Carl wasn't as bad as people thought that he might be. And then the other piece of Carl was he was a, he could be an asshole. I mean, he, he just, he was a hard guy to get along with and you could easily, yeah, he, he could be a fair weather friend. He could, he could think the world of you one day and not like you the next day. And, and, and as I, as I say all this, understand that I loved him. I mean, he was, you know, he was like a second dad to me, but even he knew he was. Even if you ask Carl, Carl, what are you? It'd be like asshole. <laughs> at least he was honest about it. At least, at least the t- man was honest. Yeah. Well, Carl's famous expression was, "You know, um, the world, the world doesn't. You know, the, a fool doesn't like honesty, but the world's full of fools. So therefore, you can't be honest because everybody gets all pissy." Carl said, screw it, I'm tough enough, I don't care, and I'm going to be honest all day, every day, brutally honest, and sometimes he went beyond, because, you know, I mean, honesty is okay until you really just hurt somebody's feelings for no reason. So, I, there, are a lot of, there are a lot of people, Carl was, um, you know, Carl was a, um, either in vogue with them, you know, they had a taste for him or they didn't, and most people didn't, especially the guys in the States. His claim to fame, I mean, everything that everything that made Carl who Carl was, was he had the he was blessed to have the opportunity to deal in Japan and they appreciated everything he did. And they molded Japanese wrestling and they molded professional wrestling over there off of what 
off of what um off of what Carl did in Japan. So he was amazing. Nice. So, Jody, I wanted to talk about your dad for a little bit. I mean, he was a, I mean, true bona fide wrestling legend. I, my son told me the Insane Clown Posse even uh, had an album called The Great Malenko. Uh, he won a truckload of titles. And, you know, back in the day, in the territory days, the promoters didn't just give titles to anybody. They gave they gave them to people who could, could work and who could draw. So um, if this question could easily take up the rest of the show, but can you give our listeners just a Reader's Digest version uh, of the career of Larry Simon, aka the Great Malenko. Well, what was a, it was a it was a long career. I mean, my dad again, you know, as I stated before, my dad started in New York and then he made his way around the territories. And I don't think there was a territory that he went where he wasn't viewed as either the top heel or one of the couple three top heels. Um, he made everybody money, and and not to say that you know they didn't give him the talent that he needed to do his job in the ring. You know, the the thing about my dad was. One is that he didn't take himself too seriously, so he was he was a humble guy. But in the ring, he was amazing. There wasn't anybody that you could put in the ring with my dad that he couldn't have a match with. So he um you know, he made his way around the country and and um you know towards the end of towards the end of his career in the wrestling world, what he ended up doing was training people. And so he had he had sort of the second career that's even probably more important than the first one. The first one was him being one of the boys and working and, you know, drawing crowds wherever he went and doing a great job and people thinking that he was special. But even more important was after the fact, when he got into the, got into the training side of the business, I mean, between my dad and myself, I was involved and my brother, you know, we, and there, there's a list of people that we were responsible for bringing along and getting into the business and having, and having long lasting careers in the business, which is the key to any wrestling school. It's one thing to tell somebody that they can come and learn the business. It's another thing to help them find a job. It's another thing to get them a job in the business where they actually now have a, they're making a living. And we did that for a dozen people. You know, guys, uh, Mark Miro and uh, Johnny B. Bad. Um, Mark Miro was Johnny B. Bad. Uh, uh, one to three kids, Sean Waltman. Sean started with us when he was, yeah, he was a skinny little teenager. I think he was 13 years old, 13, 14 wow. years old. Yeah. When, when my dad passed away, Sean, <laughs> Sean probably cried more than I did. Not not saying that I didn't cry. <laughs> Sean was so broken up. I mean, he was a second dad to most of these people. Glenn, um, Undertaker, Taker. Mm-hmm. I used to get in the I used to get in the ring and legitimately go at it shoot style with with Glenn back in the day. I was you know, I was nuts and fearless and didn't realize how big he was until afterwards. I'm looking at him going, "You're a big, you're a big guy." <laughs> But that, you know, so my dad, you know, my dad, um, my dad made his mark in the business across multiple territories. Florida was the territory for him. He had a he had a run with Eddie Graham that lasted almost 10 years. It is arguably or maybe inarguably the the feud of professional wrestling. If anybody looks around at what went on in other territories, the Florida territory and and the Graham Malenko feud was amazing. And they had a couple of angles that. You know, we're we're forty years later, and people still talk about my dad getting oh, yeah. out and stamped. Mm-hmm. You know, stomped. Well, like you had said, you know, he was in the uh, the old W would have been the WWWF early nineteen sixties. Uh, you mentioned being in a locker room with Bruno. Him, uh, your father wrestled pre champ Bruno several times. Um, 
you know, obviously at the time under the name Larry Simon. And then in uh, April, you're saying this is April 1962, uh, first appearance in Florida, losing to Joe Scarpa, who, of course, would later become Jay Strongbow, one of the one of the, one of the bigger, the, biggest, one of the few Italian Indians out there. Right. From Nutley, New Jersey. Hey, if, if there's one thing I've learned between Jay Strongbow and then for our uh, younger listeners, the um, Muhammad Hassan gimmick, Italians can play anything if they need That's to. Right. Yeah. Pretty much. Pretty much. But uh, so so he he kind of transitions into the great Malenko at this point. Do you know the story behind that name? You know, the sad thing is, is some of this information has been lost to the lost to the uh, wherever he never. And if he did talk to me about it, uh, sad to say, I just, I just didn't digest it and keep it in, you know, in my head. He never really told me, or I don't remember if he really ever told me when the Malenko name came up. I mean, when he was up in New York, he went under the names of Crusher Dugan, uh, Larry Dugan, Crusher Dugan. He was Larry Simon in the beginning. Crusher Dugan, Larry Dugan. Then he uh, became, um, then he became Otto von Krupp. That was his right, big yes. Mm-hmm. And he was. I mean, my dad was 5'10 on a good day in heels, and he had uh, he had 265 pounds packed on him, and he didn't have much fat. He, he was he was a big he was a big boy, <laughs> and he was impressive looking because he had he shaved his head. He had a forelock of hair that would come down almost like uh, Mongo Bolo Mongo whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So and then he had a Fu Manchu that would go into a goatee. That was my dad. He was a scary. He was scary to me, and I was his kid. <laughs> long flowing black cape and he did the whole goose stepping thing because he was playing off of the fact that we're still you know at that time we're still not so far enough removed from world war ii and the hate of germany that he could right. use that you know he could use that as his storyline eventually eventually that's one of the reasons why he moved on over to the russian gimmick because you know, he went from everybody hating the germans to everybody um you know not 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 liking the uh um, you know, the Russian Empire at the time. Yeah, Cold right. War. What, Jody? What about the professor part? Like, what? What? Why did he take that as well? He just he just started to expand on his gimmick. I mean, at first he was Boris Malenko, then he was a great Malenko, then he was a great Boris Malenko, then he was a great Boris Maximilianovich Malenko, then he was Professor Boris Maximilianovich. Yeah, just he just if he would have if he would have stayed alive, we wouldn't even be able to say his name in the time that this podcast is on. <laughs> Well, one, one last question about your dad. So I saw this video this weekend. I had never seen it. Uh, it was about the, the Knoxville Five. Uh, they had a, a very controversial, it was called Plan v, B video. Oh, and, yeah. Uh, oh yeah. Yeah, and uh, it was done in 1979. So it was years ahead of Eddie Mansfield or any uh, anybody else, you know, as far as breaking kayfabe. And I know the video was kept under wraps for years and years. But what, why did they do that in the first place? It was your dad, Bob Roop. And a couple other guys. Well, I, I was I was up there, guys. I was I was uh, I was actually working up there. I was I worked as Joe Sims because I couldn't be a Malenko because my dad was the top heel in the area, so I had to go in. I was I was Joe Sims. I had the opportunity. I mean, I worked against Bob Roop. I worked against Randy. Against Savage. I worked against Orton at the time. I mean, those were some of the best guys that I got a chance to get in the ring with. Um, so. Where it all stemmed was what I was talking about before, which was promoters were sort of rough on the boys and 
know, there was a lot of distrust and untrustworthiness. And, you know, that led to the guys coming together and saying, you know, we just need to do our own damn thing. Ron Wright at the time was up there and Ron was just a, yeah, he was a, he was a icon of the, of that territory. Everybody knew him. And so he participated as well. And they did a, you know, they did a, they did a, they did a competitive promotion just to, you know, see if they could run that territory on their own, let the Fullers do whatever they were going to do. And it, it didn't go too far, but they were also very concerned when they started down this path for two reasons. One is when you would ever, whenever you would go against the local promotions or you would talk about unionizing and trying to come to terms with what was best for the boys, you were threatened blackmail. Uh, there were a number of times that guys from around the country were supposed to get together and talk about how to bring the boys together and go back to the promoters and say, you know, we're, you're not doing contract, you're going to employ us. You're going to give us benefits. You're going to make sure that we're okay. Um, whenever they would start to talk about it, they would get calls. So my dad, you know, my dad would always participate because he was a rabble rouser. And every time he started to participate, he would get a call saying, hey, if you do this, good luck and good luck working anywhere ever again in the United States. So he'd, he'd end up having to back off because he had two kids and a wife. Um, I don't remember where I was going with all this. Oh, yeah. What, what was the original question? No, what was the purpose of it? Like, why did they, why oh, did they make the video? So, so that was the purpose of the video. The purpose of the video was to avoid, you know, the Fullers and the Welshes coming back against the guys, either through, you know, some kind of blackmail deal or, um, you know, using their already existing clout with, with local law enforcement and the venues to shut these guys down. So the threat was, hey, let us be. You run your stuff, make some money. Let us run our stuff, make some money. Leave us alone. But if you don't, then we've got this thing sitting there. I don't know if the, <laughs> I don't think the Fullers ever knew about it. I don't think the Welshers ever knew about it. So it really is just this thing that sat out there and disappeared, like in perpetuity, until somebody discovered it somewhere. We have no idea where, it, how it came up. I talk to Roop all the time because Bob and I, you know, we're good friends. We go way back. And Roop has no clue how it cropped up. We have we have no idea. So, you know, would this thing have been used? And they would have been hard-pressed to ever put that out there. Because once you do that, at least in those days, once you do that, you kill the business. Turns out Vince did it, and he didn't kill the business. And yeah, he became a billionaire. But that that's different than they, they felt. That's different than they felt would happen if they let the cat out of the bag and and really expose the business. When well, they, I looked they, at I had never seen the video. When it came out fairly recent, and I saw it for the first time, I had a holy shit moment, because I never would have dreamed in a million years <coughs> that my dad in particular would ever say anything against the business or point to the business not being legit. And he was the elder state, statesman of the group, yeah, I mean, and very, very articulate, though. I mean, I think Roop went first, but your dad was second. And they were really the two most, I would think, eloquent people of, on the video. You know, Garvin, Garvin, was a, Garvin was a hell of a hand. Uh, Bobby, Bobby Orton was a hell of a I mean, Ron had, Wright was the other guy. Ron Wright was the other guy. We, we had, yeah. I mean, what, was, what existed in that promotion was a tremendous amount of talent. And the video was an attempt to make sure that, Nobody stepped on our toes and shut us down, but circumstances had it that it, it didn't work anyway. Now, 
Jody, this is the ICW, right? This was the uh, the the uh, the Papos promotion, or no? No, it wasn't. No, this wasn't the Papos promotion. Oh, okay. It's, yeah, Randy was Randy was involved with us. Lanny was in and out once in a while, but their promotion was a different promotion. I thought they were up in Nova Scotia or something like that. No, they had one in 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 uh, I believe in Louisville. They they might have. They yeah, might have. yeah, ICW. Hard to keep tabs on the stuff without a program. So where was where was the one that your, your dad's one was based in Knoxville then? Yeah, it was Knoxville. Okay. And again, it was you know it was my dad, Bob Roop, Bobby Orton. I, I don't think I don't know if Bobby was really integral to the core group. It was um, uh, Ronnie Garvin and Dog Cameo. What's that? Oh, I I was apologizing. My my dog walked into the background. My wife's dog oh. walked into the background. I was apologizing for the uh, the cameo. Does he have a question? He's a big wrestling <laughs> fan. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's only Jessica's dog. It's not yours. Don't 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 let her uh, don't let her. T- she'll try and say it's my dog, but okay. she's lying. Uh, it's not like our dog. I mean, geez, it's definitely her dog. No, um. <laughs> I apologize for the I apologize for the interruption. Um, you, Jody, you were talking about um, obviously you said with your dad being the top heel, you had to wrestle under a different name. Speaking of different names, you made your professional wrestling debut in Mexico under the name Carl Gotch Jr. One, I mean, obviously, maybe the 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 answer seems obvious, but why that name and why Mexico? So. When I was up in the Carolinas, I was mostly refereeing. I wrestled a couple times, but I was mostly refereeing for Mid-Atlantic at the time. Um, Carl, Carl contacted me. I was, you know, I had trained with Carl for a while already at that point. I was pretty much past my, I was pretty much past my serious um, mat training. So I was up there being a, yeah, I was up there being a referee, trying to be a pro. Carl, Carl made a connection with Flores in Mexico City. Got me a decent deal. I made 500 bucks a week at the time, so that was good money for me. And um, you know, I I just I went down there. And when I was hit, I was I was getting ready to head out, and Carl came up to me unsolicited. And he says, "Hey, um, I, if you wouldn't mind, I'd like for you to." He said it. If you wouldn't mind, I'd like for you to take my name. You know, would you do that? I'm like, "Are you kidding me?" Of course, because they knew him down there somewhat. Um, yeah, so I. Took the name Carl Goss Jr. because he asked me to take his name, which I consider to this day to probably be the most, you know, the, the the greatest compliment that he could have given me. Not too many people come up to you and want them to want you to take their name unless they're unless they're adopting you. He didn't adopt me. Uh, that's fair. So I went to you know I went to Mexico and I worked down there for was, what four or five months something like that, and uh, had a great time. I had there was a there was an article in one of the magazines Carl and I and brought a saxophone down there for some reason because I was starting to play sax a little bit. I was terrible. So I um, I go down, I bring the sax, and one of the guys, one of the, the um, media guys knew about the sax, so he had to take a shot with the sax. Ridiculous. So anyway, there's this article, and I saw that, you know, it's the first article I ever had in a, in a periodical of any kind. So I, I looked at there. I'm all excited. I'm like, ooh, look. I'm in a, you know. So I bring that back, and I'm I kind of forgot about it. So just not too long ago, maybe maybe a couple of years ago, I um, it it came up in something, and I saw it, and I'm like, oh, look at that. And Well, I had a buddy from uh, Buenos Aires who speaks fluent Spanish, because I don't. And uh, I showed him that, and he goes, his face kind of changed a little bit. I said, what, 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 
far you he goes, well, they said it's not that good. <laughs> so what they pretty much said was I didn't live up to the expectations of what Carl Gott Jr. should be because yeah, I wasn't I wasn't Carl Gott. Screw them. They didn't know. <laughs> so uh, Dan and I actually use the wrestling it's wrestling wrestlingdata.com website. Uh, to do our research and you know looking at the uh, your history on there you made a ton of trips to japan and wrestled there for a, for a long while did a lot of tagging with dean but you did win the new japan pro wrestling uh, world junior heavyweight championship on two separate occasions what was the intrigue of japan that kept you coming back uh they would pay you in crisp 100 dollars bills that that that's a that's a good intrigue that's a, that's yeah that's a i like guy. that yeah well, look, you know, in all seriousness, beyond that, it was you, you go to Japan. They really appreciate everything you do. The Japanese audience was always just phenomenal. At first, you know, you think they're sitting on their hands, but then you realize they're just intent in watching you. And and, and they do. They, I mean, uh, there's times where they explode and they react uh, as much or more than the than the U.S. fans. So you got to go to Japan. You knew you were going to get what they told you you were going to get, both in, both financially and for your work. Um, you were working with the best guys in the world because everybody and their mother who was anybody was coming to Japan. There wasn't anybody who was here in the state. There, there was nobody who was here in the States that was worth anything that didn't make their way over to, to Japan to wrestle for either all Japan or New Japan. So I had, I had the opportunity to work with great guys. I had the opportunity to be taken care of very, very well when, you, when I was there. And I made decent money that I always got every dime of and never had to fight for. How do you beat that? I mean, in the world of pro wrestling, that was like the that was like the perfect deal, right? So, yeah. Did the did the fans ever riot like the ones here did? Yeah, yeah. They were too they were too respectful to do that. I mean, if, if they were ever gonna, if there was ever a riot, it was just Stan Hansen running through the crowd. He was a riot. It wasn't. It wasn't. The, he just used to beat the hell out of kids with his, uh, you know, with that big long bull rope and a bell at the end. So no no wrestlers getting stabbed. Who's it? Blackjack Mulligan, I think, got stabbed in the ring. So first of all, you know, first of all, there wasn't traditional heel. There wasn't traditional healing over there. I mean, healing as in bad stuff. Not. <laughs> yeah, there wasn't there wasn't yeah. the traditional heel in Japan to really get pissed off about. You weren't you weren't out there. You weren't out there doing the, you know, leg on the rope, um, pulling the tights, pulling the hair. You just didn't. It just. Yeah, probably existed at some level. You know, maybe maybe Abdullah, <laughs> but but everybody else, you just you just got out there and it was hard. You know, it was that hard style, right? Right. I tell <laughs> you what, what, what I I saw something. I saw a Bruno Baba match, and Bruno actually. I mean, Bruno was never a heel a day in his life, but in Japan, he was a little bit edgier than he was here in the states. Obviously, you know, Baba was the hometown favorite. I mean, when I say that people weren't heels over there, they were heels, but they didn't choose the traditional cheap heel. Right. Well, it's not even all the time cheap, <laughs> but they didn't do the typical heel stuff, you know, to get the crowd. I'm going to kill you. I'm going to, you know, referee, referee, look at that. You know, right. That there. Gotcha. You didn't have the manager spots and all that. Or, the, well, you know, or the fake tags, you know, where you, where you smack your own hand. Behind the referee, and the referee would call the tag. Yeah, we did some stupid stuff. 
Well, speaking of referee, you mentioned a few times most of your work in the States here was as a referee, maybe obviously in Florida and Mid-Atlantic. Uh, kind of expand on that a little bit. Why the decision to referee instead of wrestle, especially given given the lineage? Um, I mean, I don't know if I I don't know if I refed more than I wrestled, but I did ref a lot, and I refed a lot at the beginning because I was a young kid. I wasn't I didn't have really any, I really didn't have any size on me, and I had to I sort of had to just start out refing and make a name for myself. Um, and I always tell again those stories I always tell. You know, I was a referee up in Charlotte. But I was the guy that they sent to go down to the Coliseum to, you know, to work out with the guys who wanted to get in the business because I was, you know, I was, I don't mean to sound this a certain way, you know, I was, I was legit on the mat. So they well trained, yeah, yeah, that's fair. Yeah, the Crockers would send me, and the whole gimmick was, and I've again I've said this story so many times, but the whole gimmick was, if you go down there and you want to get in the business and you can't even beat the referee, what chance do you have? So, yeah, I was. Um, I was a ref mainly because it made sense at the time. I didn't necessarily, I wasn't, I wasn't looking at this business to be a full-time deal. It was just a way for me to make some money. And then the transition just kind of happened because as we just talked about, Carl called me one day and said, Hey, I can get you in Mexico if you want to go into Mexico. And the opportunity was there and the timing was right. Like, okay, I'll go to Mexico. 500 bucks a week, cold hard cash. It was a great place. They really took care of me down there. And that started... And that started my in-ring, my in-ring career as a worker. And then I made it over to Japan also through Carl. And I, I just, I loved it there. You know, we did a lot of independent stuff in Florida. So we, I wrestled a lot in Florida in the, for the independents, global wrestling and a couple other organizations, IWWA or whatever the heck it was. We had a number of organizations we had here going against, going against, going against Graham at the time. And we had TV, so we were actually trying to, go national at one point uh, as global all right so when you were uh, in the carolinas did you do the uh johnny rods in new york was always the measuring stick they threw you know whenever somebody new came along they threw him over johnny rods to see what he had were you kind of the same thing in the carolinas i mean not not in a match um but but outside of a match when somebody would say hey you know they'd call the office and say yeah we know can i get it can I get in the business? I'm going to get in the business. And oh, I somebody, see. You were at the, yeah. Okay. Somebody in the office would say, well, you know, you, I mean, we'll, we'll take a look at you, but if we take a look at you, you're going to have, to, you're going to have to come to the, to the uh, auditorium and work out with this guy. <coughs> and, like, what did they tell you to do that? Like, did, obviously like you had to, you know, you had to make sure that they were uh, halfway decent, right? Did you, were you really hard on them? Say that again. I mean, how tough were you on them? Oh, I wasn't. No, I, I, look, I, I always, I always understood that anybody who wanted to get in this business should at least have a shot. Some of the guys that were in the business making money should have never been in the business, but they were in it. They were making money. So why, you know, why shouldn't Joe Blow have a chance to sure. get it and make a living? Right. It's good. The reality though was that most guys that came down just, it wasn't what they it wasn't what they thought it was. It wasn't gonna be what they thought it was, so they just bowed out. Yeah. I, that makes sense. I didn't I never I never brutalized anybody. I never, you know, I never grabbed a I never grabbed a wrist lock, you know, top wrist lock or anything like that and hung on. You never did the Bob Holly. I never got a sugar hole on somebody and, you know, tortured them. Um, right. I just didn't believe in that. I thought that I thought it, I thought that was just not the thing to do. It wasn't in my eyes. 
right. we've had a uh, we've had a couple of those, Benny, guys either on the receiving end or the giving end of uh, let's call it tough love to the to the new to the newbies that want to come in. Right, exactly. Well, it's different being it's different being tough. I mean, I was I was tough on guys that I've trained with, but I wasn't I wasn't sadistic. I mean, there there was you know some guys are just freaking you know sadists. I didn't see any reason for that. That makes sense. So, Jody, speaking of a plan B, so you said mentioned before you went, you're in pharmacy, you went to school for pharmacy. Uh, you had mentioned in a previous interview, I heard you with uh, Briscoe and Bradshaw, that your dad really strongly rec- recommended you have a backup plan. And I mean, that's something you're still doing today, correct? Yeah. I mean, I learned early on. I mean, it was partly my dad looking at me saying, you know, if you want to get in that business, great, but probably good if you have something sitting there just to make sure and so that was part of it but i also you know as a kid i looked all around the place and i saw guys and you know they were they would be in the business for 20 30 years they'd get out they they didn't have you know they didn't have the proverbial pot to piss in or the window to throw it out of and i didn't want to end up like them i i think it was i think it was haystacks who ended up dying in a you know in a dilapidated old trailer or something i mean and, and he's just one of many stories of guys who had great careers and just because the road was the road was brutal. You had to pay for all your stuff. It was really hard to save money for most of these guys. They didn't make great. They just made enough to survive. And so when the business was over for them, they did no pensions, no, you know, no money set aside for them. They didn't have money. <laughs> so, you know, they, a lot of guys just died without much of anything. And I didn't want to be one of those guys. That makes sense. Respect that. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, uh, you know, Benny mentioned it earlier, talking about you know, the, some of the stories being told. Um, obviously, the, the, it, it kind of got snubbed with the Oscar nominations, but the big movie from wrestling fans last month was The Iron Claw. Yeah. And there's we've had a lot of authors on, you know, 160 episodes we've done before tonight. And, and there's so many good stories to be told. Are there any plans for a book? Or would you ever give the thumbs up to an Iron Claw-like movie about the Malenko family? Um, no, no, I mean, we, we, we don't, we don't have that much to play off of. Look, the, the Von Erichs, I mean, that's a, that's, that's a tragedy from the word go. Oh yeah. That whole tragic life of this family. I mean, how does that not translate into something that's easily put into a movie or a book? We didn't have that. You know, we, I mean, we had a lot of things happening in our lives as a wrestling family. And, and would it be of interest to some? Maybe. I had a couple guys who were going to write, you know, Scott Teal and a couple other people who write books, and they were supposed to do something in particular about my dad, not necessarily about the Malenko family. And they came, you know, Scott came back. He's like, well, you know, most of the guys that your dad really dealt with, they're dead. <laughs> it's hard to get, it's hard to interview get dead quotes, guys. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, the, I always, I always would have been, I always kind of pushed for there to be a book about my dad because he's my dad. I love him. And I would have liked a book about him because it would have been nice to you know, hand that down to my grand, but um, it didn't happen. And I don't know if it ever will happen. I don't have the, I don't have the time, the patience, nor the wherewithal to sit down and write a book. That's a lot of work. You guys want to write a book? Yeah. <laughs> well, we do write. <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, look, if anybody ever wanted to do anything, I always when <coughs> when Teal told me that there just weren't enough guys 
I, I disagree, but I wasn't the one to I wasn't one to do the detective work to see whether or not there was enough yeah. heat out there to really make this all work. I mean, those uh, one, two, three kid is still around. Mark Miro is still around. I mean, a lot of my dad's old guys have gone, but a lot of the guys that he trained are still around. Um, a lot of people remember him. I just don't I just don't get that there wouldn't have been enough. There, that there wouldn't have been enough people to really talk about my father and tell enough stories. Um, Norman Smiley. I mean, that's another one. Black. Oh, Man. yeah. Mm-hmm. You, know, you, know, um, you know, Norman, Norman Smiley begat. It's one of those biblical things, right? Norman Smiley begat all these people. But my dad begat Norman Smiley. <laughs> so indirectly. I take great pride in the fact that Norman's done so well with the. Uh, you know, with the training center and made his mark there and you know, come, it stems from being part of our family. He's a, he's a like, black sheep. You know, it's, it's uh, they, they were talking a lot about it over the weekend at the NFL playoffs. They always talk about coaching trees when you see, you know, five, six, seven head coaches, coordinators, right. guys, and, and they find, oh yeah, all of them work together. It's, it's interesting, and I was kind of hoping to, your thought on that is kind of a follow-up. Is is Norman Smiley is a great example, but there were guys that that trained under your father that have since gone on to have storied reputations as trainers. It's yeah. the the Malenko coaching tree is you know the Cody Rhodes uh, entrance music starts with the world you know the words wrestling has more than one royal family. I mean the Malenko tr- tree is one of the most revered in, in the history of wrestling. I mean that's that's a testament to the family. Period. I take pride. I take pride in that. I mean, it is. Um, yeah, it's really nice because <clears throat> when I run across people, they all tell me the same thing, and 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 it's just good to hear about your dad that your dad had an impact in a way in which he was literally he was a second dad to thirty guys, forty guys. You know, when they talk about him, they still cry about him to this day. He was there. He taught them. He brought them along. He didn't, it wasn't just a wrestling thing. It was about their life. You know, he, he guided them in their life. And um, you know, at some level, when you're a kid, you're sharing that with all these people. It's a bit irritating. But alongside of that, you're also proud of your dad because what you know, what's the ultimate legacy? I mean, the ultimate legacy is that you've impacted the lives of so many people, and they've gone on to do good things, and they've helped other people do good things. And you know, the the starting point was my father. That's actually a perfect segue into the uh, the next question because two of our former former guests were uh, were students of your dad and they they spoke the world of not only him but you know you and your brother as well and uh, both of them I chatted with both of them I chatted with uh, uh, Buck Bresner on the phone the American Giant and he won I don't know if you remember him or not but I, well he's kind of hard to forget being seven foot three but he you know he. he always talks about your dad every conversation we ever had and he said you know you and you and dean were great very good to him and um the mass saint chris whaley yeah uh, and he uh actually messaged me i want to read what he said uh his dad was and will always be very special to me i dedicated my first book to him jody was an unbelievable wrestler and athlete uh he was also trained by carl gotch i think he was a greater talent than his brother the most difficult match i ever had was against Jody in Orlando. Not difficult because he was hard to work with, but difficult because he was the superior athlete. He's a great guy and proud to call him a friend. So I just thought you might want to know those things. He just said that to you? Yeah. Yep. Within the last two days. 
Wow, that's nice. Thank you. Yeah. Thank really you. good guy. He was he was our guest a couple of months ago. Well, you know, I mean, he so he he went through the school. He wanted to be a wrestler. He went through the school, and then um, you know, then he wanted to get into the ministry. So he was heading on out to Texas. So my dad, um, my dad hooked him up. I think he did. He hook him up with Bronco Lubitsch or somebody. I think it was. Bronco I think so. I think that's who he said. Yes. So I think he hooked him up with Bronco Lubitsch to get a job in Texas while he was going to the seminary, and um, yeah. So that's how the whole you know mass saint thing came about because he was. He was setting his religious path at the same time he was getting in the ring and wrestling. So, yeah. But he spoke on and on. I mean, that call that your dad made like meant so much because, I mean, at that point, it was still very difficult to get in anywhere. And yeah. you know, having somebody like a, a Boris Malenko call on your behalf, I mean, that's, 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 your, that's your ticket. Well, right? Bob, I mean, Bob, Bob, Bob Cook always tells, Bob Cook tells his story. And he was up, he went up to New York for the first time. He was getting ready to go against somebody, and Gorilla Monsoon said, so who trained you? And Bob said, Boris Malenko. Gorilla said, okay, you're good, and then walked out of the oh, garden. Jeez, that's all you need to know, right? Yeah, that's all he needed to know, that Bob was trained by my dad. That, that says it all right there. Absolutely. Well, I mean, it's it's crazy that the stories, and you know, we always say this on the shows, how it feels like we could go on forever and not scratch the surface. Benny, as we wrap up tonight, um, final thoughts and, and question to you. What, what are you thinking? No, I just, you know, uh, these, just when I think we have, you know, we, we've interviewed everybody. So there's, there's another great guest. Jody was great. I mean, part, and, and so many great families out there. And I think the Malenko's, you know, when you, when you talk about great families, I mean, they got to be right up there because, you know, Boris Malenko, I mean, it, he's like on the Mount Rushmore of heels. I mean, great, great heel. I mean, the master of psychology, Dean, I mean, the, the ultimate wrestling technician, you know. So I'm just I'm just glad to be able to, to chat with these people. It never gets old. Thank you. Enjoyed it. Uh, go ahead. No, I was just saying I've enjoyed it. How was the well, pizza, Jody? Being, you know, being an Italian guy, I'm not that far from that place. Do you recommend it? The Italian place that I'm at? Yes. Uh, yeah, decent pizza. Okay. You know, you, so you always got to qualify things because if you're if you're a Jersey guy and you lived up in Jersey, New York, you know the the whole the whole gimmick is nothing's as good as uh, as it is up you, there. You talk you're talking right. to Long Island here, so yeah, I get it. <laughs> I was just talking to a buddy of mine in Sayasa just yesterday. Okay, I'm Farmingdale, not that far away. Wow. So, not a bad place. Okay. There you go. Sergio's. Sergio's Italian restaurant. Okay. okay. I know we, we, we keep touching with the family, and you talk about the reputations. Um, my question to you, uh, do you follow the the current product at all? Um, or any, any thoughts on, on the st- state of wrestling today? Not at all. Well, I have, uh, of course I have thoughts. Um, and they're my thoughts, you know, uh, the disclaimer on the bottom, these are my thoughts. They don't necessarily mean they should be anybody else's thoughts. I, I don't, I'm not particularly fond of the product. And, you know, some of that just comes with the territory of being an older guy. Cause when you get older, you're supposed to point back the, the way things used to be and say how great they were. And you're supposed to point to things that they are you know, the way that they are today. And just by default, you're supposed to say that it's, you know, it's terrible and it's not the way it should be anymore. <laughs> Right, but it, is, but it is legit. You know, we—I was just talking to somebody the other day 
I think I was talking about, actually, I think I was talking to my brother. And, you know, my brother just, my brother, you know, he's got some, he's had some surgeries. I've had surgeries. And he said to me, he goes, he goes, I fear, I fear for these guys. Oh, who, yeah. Who are working today. And the fact that they're going to be 35 years of age, 40 years of age, and they're going to be on walkers and, you know, in wheelchairs yeah. on what on whatever, because they're just destroying themselves for no reason whatsoever. I've seen matches. And, and yes, the, the crowd, are, the crowds are different, but the crowds have been indoctrinated into what they should and shouldn't like by the boys. The boys, you in the ring dictate what a crowd feels. If you're a good ring general, if you're a good ring psychologist, you tell them how to feel. You tell them when to react. Right. They, the, the business has lost that. So now these guys are constantly wanting themselves just to get that next big pop because the double corkscrew off the top rope into a, you know, flying, flying crony <laughs> didn't, uh, didn't quite do the job this last time. Yeah, through, through a flaming table. You're killing yourself. For what? Mm. And it's it's sad because you you watch um, you know people today like like a CM Punk or or Gunter who we've spoken highly of on the show before. There's guys that can wrestle the territory style, and the crowd eats it up like it's no you know the best thing they've ever seen. It doesn't have to be the craziness, but at some point the 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 circuit decided that's what the fans want, and you know the, those. And the, the high flyers took over. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. No, no rational thing behind it necessarily. It just happened and they continue it. You know, could you pull back? I think if you, I, I don't know. I don't know if you ever can go back, but I think they could to some degree. They could back off a little bit. You don't have to do as much and put your body at such significant risk. I mean, look, just if you're just one of the boys, you're if you're a pro and you're taking a bump, when when you get put on this earth, God says I'm gonna I'm gonna allow you seventy thousand bumps. Yeah. Seventy thousand in the first bump, you're gonna pay a price. That's whether or not you're doing all the fancy crazy stuff off the top, out into the you know out into the second row tables chairs you know, off of off of cages. Take that away, just just bumps. You you're gonna pay a price just doing the basics. Now add in yeah. the stuff and. You, you're cutting your longevity in the business by half, probably. And it's sad. You know, and these guys don't realize it until somewhere down the road where they're they're not even able to crawl out of bed. And then they're going to be going, holy crap, I wish I hadn't done that. Yeah, I've got a lot of money, but I really can't go anywhere. Yeah, but was it really worth it? Yeah. yeah. I mean, maybe, maybe I'm thinking, you know, from a podcaster standpoint, but, like, here we are. It's 2024. You know, uh, the first – the first match under your, if you if you look up Joe Malenko on YouTube, is from ni- the first thing that comes up, 1989. So we're the better part of 40 years later, and I still want to hear your story. Some of the guys today that are that are jumping through piles of chairs and thumbtacks and baskets of barbed wire, 40 years from now, fans aren't going to want to hear that story. They're they're going to forget. They're going to they move on. Have, flavor of the week. They don't have as many stories. Because that too, yeah. you know, most, most of the stories, most of the really good stuff were the road stories. Not, yep, there you go. Yeah, amen to that. 
They were the road stories. They were being in a car with a guy for six hours, getting to a getting to a venue, then getting in your car and going to another venue because you were making a circuit of the Carolinas through, you know, through North, South Carolina, Virginia. You, you were traveling 800, 900 miles. Those are the stories. The stories are what was going on along, you know, peripheral to the to the matches, to the matches themselves. Those were the funniest times. Those were the most, you know, those were the most memorable time, memorable times. I had some times in the ring that I remember, but that was the that was the best stuff. I had I had the greatest times. You know, I traveled a lot with Angelo Papa, and Angelo, you know, Angelo would travel in his old beat up Mercedes. wasn't beat up. But it was an old Mercedes Benz. He'd keep the sunroof open. It'd be cool as hell outside. He'd have his shirt off, getting sun, and he would never stop. The reason I rode, and he would never stop. So if you had to go to the bathroom, you were screwed. You you, you either crapped yourself or peed on yourself because he wouldn't stop. <laughs> Jesus. And you'd look at him, look at him in the ring, in the, you'd be on the road, and you'd be on the road with him for five or six hours, and he didn't ever. I, I I'd be looking for a you know like for a leg bag or something with a catheter because he didn't stop. What was um, his secret? He. But as much pain in the ass as that was, he only charged two cents a mile trans, so he was cheaper than everybody else in the territory. Oh, okay. Like, and, <laughs> yeah. Okay, that's fair. And he had great, and he had great stories, and he was just a really good man. So, and he was good friends with my dad. I respect that. A lot, well, like I said, guy, that, a lot of the younger guys said that, like uh, um, traveling in the car like that, also was like you know, it's like being in a mobile college. You're, you're driving for eight hours, and you're soaking up all this knowledge and, and mm-hmm. wisdom from these older guys, and it was like it was priceless. Um, I mean, sometimes that was the case. It was more the case that you were. You were messing with each other. Yeah. <laughs> We've heard some well, of those stories, and, right? And it was going on either in the cars or in the, you know, in the hotels, every, you know, restaurants <laughs> and stuff. I mean, you guys were just every everything's a punchline until the Steiner brothers pull a gun on somebody. Yeah, that tends to shut people down, or yeah. or until or until Haku bites your nose off. Yeah, <laughs> the, like you said, the ultimate game of got your nose. I love it. Well. Uh, Jody, again, I can't thank you enough for your time. This has been great. I, everyone who's listening, you have to go find some of the clips. Er, early, early matches. Uh, Joe Malenko, the Malenko family. Obviously, your, your legacy and legendary name. It's been great. Uh, do you have? You, you know, it, there's always the stories out there. We'd love to the chance to talk to you again if the time comes. Um, and so keeping the ear out, uh, obviously, you know, Dan and Benny here, we're anywhere podcasts can be listened to. Uh, we're going to get this video uploaded, our friends at Monty and the Pharaoh on YouTube. Uh, Benny, another great show. So for Jody Simon and the Malenko family, for the playa himself, Benny Scala, I'm Dan Spostiano. Have a good night, everyone, and we will see you next time on The Ring.